And this morning, as we, as I already alluded to in the prayer, as we, as we continue to study, we are going to be reading two more uh, amazing stories, two, two more amazing stories about the life and ministry of Jesus. And I, and I say two more because, guys, we're only six chapters into this book. Um, so, again, that's funny in and of itself, but we're only six chapters in, and how many amazing stories have we already read? I mean, it is, it is unbelievable the types of things that we're seeing uh, in, in, this, in this book. And, it, and I, one of the things I was thinking about as a, you know, preparing this week is I've read these stories before. And so it, it's hard sometimes. You come to these stories, you're like, yeah, I've heard this before. But can you imagine being the people who were living in Galilee at the time that this was happening? Can you imagine just being there and, and, and hearing stories about a guy who, you know, healed, a, freed a demon-possessed man at the synagogue or, or, or cleansed a leper along the road? Or, or, or did you hear the story about the guy that, they, that, that this, this rabbi Jesus, they, they, his buddies carried him to this guy's house, they peeled open the roof and they lowered him down and, and then he just said, get up and walk, and he did? Like, so it's hard because we read these stories and we're like, yeah, Jesus healed a guy who was paralyzed. He got up and walked. And, but what? Right? These are amazing, amazing stories. We've only read six chapters, and we've just been boom, 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 boom. And today we get to read two more. But I got to tell you that this chapter, chapter seven, is absolutely one of my favorite chapters in the Gospel of Luke. It's one of my favorites. Uh, we're going to spend, I think, roughly three weeks in, in chapter Seven, which actually is a record. I think all the other chapters, we've actually spent more uh, time than that. But we're going to spend about three weeks in chapter seven. And from start to finish, what we're going to see, I think we, we get to see the heart and the compassion of Jesus on full display in, in these stories that we're going to be looking at. And, and even as we're looking at them, it's, I don't want to give away where we're going, but man, we're going to see such contrasts. Like today, we're going to see this, this centurion who, who is so humble he doesn't even feel like he's worthy to have Jesus come into his home. When we get to the end of the chapter, we're going we're gonna to encounter a Pharisee who is so proud that he disrespects Jesus as he welcomes him into his home. And I use the term welcome pretty, pretty loosely. But we're going to see these contrasts. It's an incredible, incredible chapter. But the thing that jumps out to me is that we see the compassion and the heart of our Savior on display in these stories. And I hope that... that that you, again, do more than just see them, but did you say, I want to be like him? I want to be like Jesus with the people around me because I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a lot of hurting people in the world. There's a lot of hurting people in the world. And I think sometimes we're like, yeah, there's a lot of hurting people out there, right? But I just want you to know with confidence that there's a lot of hurting people sitting in the seats right around you right now right now. My wife and I just spent a few days away with uh, a, a team of, uh, from the ministry that she works for, Thrive, and, and amazing listening to stories and, and just the, everybody is struggling with something. Everybody's had a, a, a difficulty or some difficult circumstance that they've had to walk through in the last few months or, or year. And, and if you take the time to talk to the people around you, if you really care, if you really ask them what hurt have you had to deal with in the last year? They've got something to tell you. They do. Man, this is going to be the longest sermon ever. I haven't even started looking at what I've written. 
But I want you to know that the people around you, that, that if you're a follower of Jesus, the, the same heart of compassion that he had, he's called you to live with that same heart of compassion for the people around you. And the people that are sitting around you right now, they need you. They need you. And if you're somebody who's hurting here today and you're like, man, I'm carrying a load, the people around you are the people that God's put in your life to help you walk through that too. So do yourself a favor. Get rid of the mask. Let's just be real with each other. You know, I've got problems. You got problems. We're all messed up. We need Jesus and we need each other. Amen? Wow. This, uh, this passage has wrecked my heart this week. Um, I love the heart of Jesus, his compassion. Well, let's begin reading in Luke chapter 7, verse 1. You guys love it when I do that, don't you? I was talking to the sound guys a couple weeks ago. I was doing the whole plank thing. And the guy that was running sound afterwards, he said, man, why didn't you use your other arm? You kept smacking the mic with your arm. Oh, man. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to uh, elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. So Luke tells us that this next story took place after Jesus had finished all of his sayings in the hearing of the people. And for the last three weeks in our series, that's what we've been looking at. We've been looking at these sayings of Jesus. It was actually a sermon, right? A sermon that is often referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. And in this sermon, Jesus is teaching his disciples what life in his kingdom really looks like. He said, oh yeah, you're, you're my followers. He looks up, he sees his followers, he said, you're my followers. Let me tell you what it looks like to be a Christian. This is what your life is gonna look like if you follow me. And what we saw in that sermon, I don't wanna recap the whole sermon because we'd be here for a while, but just suffice it to say that what we saw is that Jesus expects his followers to live radically different lives than the people around us, right? He calls his, his followers to love their enemies. I come back to that part of the sermon because that for me is like the hardest part of the sermon. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Pray for them. What? But that's what Jesus calls us to because he calls his followers to live their lives with an eternal perspective. See, what we realize as followers of Jesus is that they may persecute us, they may hate us, they may mistreat us, but at the end of the day, they are souls who are separated from God who need nothing more, nothing less rather than, than, than the salvation from Jesus. That's what they need most. Jesus' followers live with the idea that, you know, you can take away my cloak and I'll give you my tunic too because I care more about your soul than I do about my possessions. Radical, radical teachings from, from Jesus. Well, after that teaching, after those, that sermon on the plain, Luke says that Jesus and his disciples, they, they entered Capernaum. Now, you may remember from several uh, weeks ago that Capernaum, isn't that a beautiful place? It's beautiful. But you remember, may remember that th this is the place that we looked at uh, you know, a few weeks ago. It's located on the northwestern shores of the Sea of Galilee. And this city was the home base for Jesus. After he left, he grew up in Nazareth, but during his earthly ministry, this was, this was headquarters for Jesus. He'd go out, he'd do ministry, he'd come back to Capernaum. 
This is where he set up. This is also the home of, of Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. Um, just, a, just an amazing place. And we've encountered like so many stories already that took place in Capernaum. When you hear Capernaum, you just got to think the miracles and the teachings of Jesus. This place was blessed to see so, so much when Jesus was walking the earth. Uh, we already mentioned it, but we, this, this is the place where Jesus freed a demon-possessed man at the synagogue. This is the place where, where Jesus went to Simon Peter's house and, and healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. She was very sick with a high fever and Jesus healed her, right? This is the place uh, where, where Jesus healed a paralyzed man, the one that was lowered down through the roof. This happened all in Capernaum. This is the place where, where Jesus was walking through the city and he comes across the tax booth and he invites this guy named Matthew to come and follow him. Leave your tax booth and come and follow me. That happened in Capernaum. And Capernaum is the place where Matthew invited all his sinful friends over for a dinner and Jesus was the guest of honor. This is all happening in and around Capernaum. It's an amazing, amazing place. And with so many stories, so many things happening in and around this, this city of Capernaum, it is not surprising at all to, to, to think that, that word about Jesus was spreading everywhere, right? People, people were hearing, you go to the market, what are they talking about? They're talking about this rabbi, Jesus, who he healed a man who was lowered down through the roof. And you're hearing all these stories, and boy, you would not believe how much he upset the Pharisees the other day. People would have been laughing about that and also wondering like, oh no, what is about to happen? This, this was an amazing time in and around Capernaum. And Luke says that there was a centurion who had heard about Jesus. He'd heard about the power and the authority that Jesus had to heal those who were sick. And it just so happened that this centurion had a servant who was sick a servant who was at the point of death, Luke's, Luke writes. In Matthew's account, Matthew chapter eight, he tells us that, that this servant was lying paralyzed at home, suffering greatly. You get the picture in your head of, of what this, where this servant was at? He can't move. He's incredibly sick and he's suffering greatly in nearing the point of death. Of death. And so this centurion thought, hey, maybe this Jesus that I've heard so much about, maybe he would be willing to heal my servant. And so this centurion, he, he sent elders of the Jews asking Jesus to come and heal his servant. Why? Because this servant was highly valued by this centurion. Other translations say that he was highly regarded, he was highly esteemed, or he was dear to this centurion. It's, it's more than just like, well, he makes me a lot of profit. That's not the value that, that Luke is describing here. It's, it's an affection. He, has, he cares deeply about this servant which is interesting, and it tells us a lot about the character of this centurion. I'll come back to that in a minute. Let's just talk about centurions for a moment, okay? Centurions were mid-level military leaders who were 
they were considered to be the backbone of the Roman army. These leaders were the, they were the commanders of roughly 100 soldiers, hence the name centurion. It actually could fluctuate. It could be 80 to 120, even upwards. It could even get up closer to 200, but generally speaking, about 100, a ruler over 100. And they were appointed to this position of leadership based on their demonstrated uh, leadership, character, bravery, and, and accomplishments in battle. Centurions were, they were well-respected men in the Roman army. Just a side note that I think is worth just maybe just writing it down. And as you read through the New Testament, you're going to find something really fascinating. Centurions are always portrayed in a positive light in the New Testament. Isn't that interesting? Every centurion that's mentioned in the New Testament is portrayed in a positive, positive light as, as someone who had great faith or somebody who came to Christ. Um, fascinating to, to think that that's the way they're portrayed because that, that's not necessarily how they'd be portrayed in other forms of literature. They were, so they were well-respected, but they were also well-compensated. Centurions made a pretty good living. The, the, the common soldier did not. The common soldier did not. But, but common soldiers could, if they were the had what it took, they could work their way up and become a centurion. And when they did, they had arrived. According to New Testament scholar Daryl Bach, centurions earned significant amounts of money. They would make, get this, 50 to 100 times more than the lowest paid soldier in the Roman army. You just think about that. Just take, just take like minimum wage and multiply it times 50 times 100. And, and, and think about the gap between those two. It's significant, right? This is a very significant difference between, between the entry-level soldier and a centurion. They actually made 10 to 20 times more than the common laborer that was living in Galilee at this time. So 10 to 20 times more. So now take the average, I don't know, laborer's job, multiply it times 10 to 20 more, and that, that's what a centurion was making. So they, they were wealthy. They were well-respected. They were well-compensated. But here's the thing that you really need to keep in mind. As we read through this text, what you really need to keep in mind is that centurions were Gentiles. A centurion was a Gentile. In other words, they were not Jews. They were not Jewish people. And not just any Gentiles. Centurions worked for who? They worked for Rome. They worked for the occupying force in Israel. How do you think most Jews felt about Rome? They didn't like them, right? And, and so centurions were the visible uh, representation of Caesar Augustus in Rome, influencing and controlling this land. They were the enemies. That's who the Romans were to the, common, to the common Jew. So here in this story, what we have is a Gentile centurion, a wealthy and a powerful man who is deeply concerned for his sick and dying servant. And as I said before, that tells us a lot about this man's character because, because care for servants was not typical in that day. Masters were known. They were known to mistreat their servants and treat them very harshly, to treat them like tools 
to be discarded when they were no longer useful. So you got to imagine this. For the typical master, they've got, he's got a servant who is paralyzed. He's sick and he's to the point of death. How useful is he to, you know, is he to me now? The typical master would say, let him die. Let him die. Moving on. Get me another servant, right? But not this centurion. By the way, that attitude, that attitude of masters towards their servants is something that Paul had to address when he wrote the book of Ephesians. When you got Christians who were, people were coming to Christ, both servants were coming to Christ and masters were coming to Christ. And so Paul in, in Ephesians chapter six, he talks about the relationship between masters and servants and how they were to treat each other with respect. They were to serve each other as bond servants of Christ. He was saying, masters, serve your servants like you're serving Jesus. He then says to masters, do not threaten your servants. Remember, remember that you both have the same master in heaven. And he has no favorites. Isn't that awesome? So this was a real, this is a real issue. This is how, so masters did not treat their servants well. And, and, and Paul comes along and says, that's not how things are going to operate in the church of Jesus. Jesus' followers don't behave that way towards their servants. And servants don't take advantage of the fact that your, your master is a Christian either. You work hard as unto the Lord. Work for Jesus. Love like Jesus. It, it was, it was life-changing in the relationship of masters and servants. So this, this centurion, he, he, he genuinely cared. He genuinely cared for his servant. We can also see that this man was not only a genuinely caring man, he was also a humble man. He had a sensitivity to the relationship between Jews and Gentiles at this time. As I said, Roman occupation, right? So most Jews, they don't like the, the, the Romans, and the Romans don't like the Jews, and they, they, they just tolerate each other as best they can, right? And so he, being sensitive to this awkward dance between the Gentiles and the Jews, has the wisdom to send elders of the Jews to go to Jesus on his behalf, to approach Jesus, this, this Jewish rabbi. J- Jesus is famous at this point, right? He's a famous Jewish rabbi. And this centurion says, I'm not gonna approach a a, a famous Jewish rabbi. I will send Jewish people on my behalf to do it. As we're gonna discover as we get further into this text, this centurion, with, with all of his wealth and with all of his authority and power, he did not consider himself even worthy to, to come to Jesus with this request. He said, I'm not worthy to approach Jesus. That's a lot of humility for a person with so much power in that area. He's placing himself underneath Jesus. By the way, that's the type of humility that we're supposed to have. Especially as we come before God, right? You know, sometimes I think we get like, wow, Jesus is my buddy. He's my friend. God loves me more than everybody else. And so we, we, can, we can become so like, it's true, he does. He loves you that much, right? He loves you so much. He, he, he loves you enough to send his son to die for you, right? But, but, but do we become cavalier about this? Like, shouldn't we always, when we come to, to, to the Lord in prayer, and that we're coming before a holy God, Right? 
who, who loved me enough to, to sacrifice his son for me, far from flippant, I should be like, wow, I am so not worthy to come before your presence, but thank you so much that you would even, that you would even care to listen to my voice. Like, wow. But this guy had that. This guy had that, which is amazing, right? Because why? He's a, he's a Roman centurion. You might expect this from people who hang out at the synagogue every day, right? You might, but he's a Gentile. Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. I don't know about you, but for me, I, like, I would rather, I'd rather have... Jesus exalt me than have to humble me, right? Let, let's, let's work on crucifying the pride in our lives so he doesn't have to, right? Powerful. So, so this centurion, he sends, he sends these Jewish leaders to Jesus on his behalf. Now, it is not really clear from the text if, if these elders of the Jews... It's not really clear, are, are they religious leaders from the synagogue? They might be. Or they could be just civic leaders from among, um, from, you know, from among the Jews in Capernaum. But what is really clear from the text, and again, it is just absolutely fascinating, is that these Jewish leaders, they are actually happy. They are delighted to approach Jesus on behalf of this Gentile Centurion. And that should make you go like, what? Really? No, they are, they are thrilled. They are honored that they're being asked to go to Jesus on behalf of this, this Gentile. In verse four, this is what we read. When they came to Jesus, so the, these Jewish leaders, they show up before Jesus. They pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Verse 6, and Jesus went with them. Can, can you picture this, this request? I mean, think about it. They could have, because the centurion said, go and ask Jesus if he'd be willing to come and, and heal my servant. They could have come to Jesus, and they could have said, um, excuse me, uh, Mr. Rabbi, sir, Jesus, um, Thanks for coming back to Capernaum, by the way. We love it when you hang out here. Good things seem to happen. We love this. So, but there, there's this centurion, okay? He lives nearby here. He heard about what you've been doing. And anyway, he asked us if you would be willing to come and, and heal us. But hey, what, whatever you want to do, it's good. Whatever you decide is to just, what should we tell him? Right? Like, that's what they could have done. They could have just come, fulfilled the, the request, we asked him, he said no, so sorry, right? But no, it says that they didn't just ask, they were pleading with Jesus, right? They were earnestly pleading on, on this man's behalf. They interceded on behalf of this man and, and his centurion and his servant like it was their own servant. They, they interceded like it was their own request, their own need. They were pleading, Jesus, please, please. They have so much respect for this, for this Gentile that they are pleading with Jesus. By the way, isn't that really what intercessory prayer is? Do you guys know we have an intercessory prayer ministry here? I encourage you to get involved with it. 
Uh, if you're interested, talk with Vicky House. Where's Vicky? I see your hand. Right there. She raised it nice and high. All right. All people in the balcony, come look over. No, I'm just kidding. She's right there. But Vicky House, see Vicky House if you'd like to get involved with our intercessory prayer ministry. But they get together every week. And, and if you fill out prayer cards with prayer requests, they are coming. They are sitting down and they are praying on behalf like it was their own need. They care. They want to bring these needs before Jesus. And that's what we do. By the way, we don't call it prayer here, but isn't that what they're doing? They're coming to Jesus. They're coming to God's son and saying, will you help? Isn't that what prayer is? When I'm praying for you, am I not going to God's son and saying, will you help this situation? That's prayer. It's talking to God, asking him to intervene. Pretty powerful stuff. But I do want you to notice what they base their appeal on. Okay, what, is it, what does it say? They, they say, Jesus, this centurion is, what's the word? Worthy to have you do this for him. In other words, they're saying, Jesus, he deserves this. I don't know if it can go so far to say it, but almost like you should do this for him, right? You kind of owe it to him. I don't know if they're going that far or not, but it sure seems that way. They're at least saying he is worthy, he deserves this, and it's all based on what? It's all based on his, his, his behavior, right? He loves our nation. He, he loves us Jewish people, Jesus. He loves you. And he actually is the one who paid to build our synagogue. Wow. You owe him, you know? You think people ever do that? You know, pay for something to be built so that they have one on you? Does that ever happen? No way. That would never, no one would ever demand to have a plaque in their name, right? He didn't ask for it, but they did, right? They're like, Jesus, it's almost like they're saying, Jesus, if it weren't for this centurion, Think about this, Jesus. If it wasn't for him, you wouldn't even have a place to, to, to heal that demon-possessed man. You wouldn't have had a place to teach us what the scriptures say. It's because of this guy that you even have a place to teach, Jesus. He built our synagogue. You should do this for him. By the way, speaking of the synagogue, I, I put this back up, this, this picture. I, I showed this to you uh, a few weeks back um, when we were, when we, I think it was Luke chapter four, when, when Jesus freed a demon-possessed man in the synagogue, at that time I showed you this picture. That on the top is a, it's a, a fourth century synagogue in Capernaum today. Uh, you, can go, you can go visit that. We're going to visit that in January. So, um, but in the picture on the bottom right, a um, little small there, I probably should have blown it up so you could see it, but in the bottom right corner of the synagogue, Archaeologists have dug down below the floor that you see in the 4th in century, and directly below it, about what four, four feet down, is the floor of the synagogue that dates to the 1st century. So what you're looking at in the lower picture is the, bot, is the bottom part of the walls and the floor of the 1st century synagogue where Jesus would have healed the demon-possessed man, freed him. This is the same synagogue that more than likely this centurion funded to be built there in Capernaum. Isn't that cool? I think that's fascinating uh, to me. What, one more thing, though, I want to point out about uh, this centurion. Based on what we read uh, in this passage, 
it is quite possible, uh, although the text does not refer to him directly this way, that this Gentile might have been what people in, in that day would have referred to as a God-fearer, a God-fearer. This, this was a term that was used, and you'll see it in other parts of Scripture, this was a term that was used to describe any Gentile who believed in, in the God of, of the Jews, right, but didn't go all the way through with becoming a proselyte. Uh, they didn't go through all, all that was necessary to become a Jew, but they did believe in the God of the Jews. They were God-fearers. In, in, the, in the case of a, of, a, of a Gentile male, that decision to become a Jew would include circumcision, which I'm sure probably kept more than a few of them from going all the way and becoming proselytes. But it is very possible that this centurion was a God-fearer. There's actually another centurion in the scriptures who is referred to as a God-fearer. We read about him in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Anybody know his name? Anybody? He's actually named. We actually have a name for him. Anybody? I heard an S, so I'm going to count that as a yes. Um, he does have an S in his name. His name is Cornelius. Cornelius. Acts chapter 10, an incredible story. Read it this week. Say, so you're like, oh, homework this week. Read Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, God show, gives Peter a vision. He, he, just go read it. It's awesome. Like a sheet coming down with all these unclean animals and things that Jews don't eat, right? And then immediately after he has this vision, he gets a knock on the door. It's like, hey, I was sent here to look for a man named Peter. Apparently, you're going to be able to tell us what the truth. And he was called. He was sent by a guy named Cornelius. Peter was in Jaffa, which, by the way, we're visiting there too. Um, you should all come with us in January. It's going to be great. So knocks on the door in Jaffa and says, hey, would you come up to Caesarea? To Caesarea, my, my, my master, Cornelius, was told to come find you. And so Cornelius is a centurion. Peter goes and he enters the house of a Gentile, which is you don't do that if you're a Jew, right? You don't go into the house of a Gentile. But Peter had a vision. What God says is clean is clean. Don't call what I've called clean unclean anymore, Peter. And my, what, I, what I'm offering now is not just available for the Jews. I am reaching out to Jews and Gentiles. Everybody is, is going to be part of my kingdom. Pretty awesome stuff, right? So that's Cornelius. He was a, a God-fearer. So read Acts chapter 10. Great story this week. But these Jewish leaders, right, they, they come, they plead with him. They, they say, this man deserves to have you do this for him. They're like, you know, if, if we were keeping score, God, of good deeds and bad deeds, and we were putting them on a scale, this guy clearly tips the scales to the good side. He is a good, good person. He's worthy. He deserves this. And you know what's really cool? Here's what's really cool about this whole story. Jesus could have corrected them. Right? I mean, what could Jesus could have said? Well, technically, technically, guys, let's get your theology straight, all right? Nobody's worthy. You know, that, he could have said that, and he would have been absolutely correct. The Bible says that there's none righteous. No, not one. It, we're, we're all sinners. We're all sinners in need of a Savior, right? But Jesus doesn't do that. And, and here's, why I think so. here's why I think this is the case. I think Jesus... He looks beyond their, their words, like, yeah, your theology is a little off here. But he sees their heart. And what he sees is a heart of compassion. These, these leaders are coming with a heart of compassion on behalf of their centurion friend. 
And, and what they're bringing is a request that was based on a heart of compassion that, that this centurion had for his sick and dying servant. And Jesus, who has a heart of compassion, is moved with compassion and says, I'm in. Let's go. Let's do this. And he did. He went with him. In Matthew's gospel, we read that Jesus said, I will come and heal him. Coming. Pretty amazing stuff. Luke continues in verse 6, and he says, when, when he was not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. So apparently, don't know how far the distance was. I don't know if he was like in Capernaum, if this guy lived outside of Capernaum, not really sure. But Jesus, and they're all heading over to the centurion's house. And apparently, the messengers run back and they're like, he's coming. And he said he's going to heal him. He's coming. And when the centurion hears the good news that Jesus is on his way to his house, he sends friends out to intercept Jesus. And he says, Jesus, I, I, I have no idea what they've told you. But let me be clear, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. What a difference, right? What a difference between the way that the people viewed him and the way that he evaluated himself. Again, incredible, incredible humility with this guy. I mentioned earlier also the, the cultural sensitivity that this guy has. See, he understood what I just talked about a moment ago, that if Jesus were to come under his roof, what does that do to Jesus? In their culture, according to their oral traditions, and we've talked about the oral traditions, right, that, uh, of the Jews at that time, he would become unclean, ceremonially unclean. If Jesus goes into this man's house if you ate with a Gentile, if you entered the house of a Gentile, according to the oral tradition, you were now unclean. And you had to go through this, oh, this, all these painstaking rituals to get clean again. And it meant you couldn't even go to the temple while you were unclean. And so, so this centurion, this centurion doesn't want to put Jesus through all the trouble. Don't, don't do this to yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. It's not worth it, Jesus. You don't need to put yourself through all this. But, but let me just say this, though. Is Jesus really worried about their oral traditions? I mean, I love that. We've already seen this in the stories. Jesus has no problem co confronting their oral traditions. So he, he's not going to go under the... Spoiler alert, okay? Spoiler alert. He's not going to go under the man's roof. He's not. It would have been so cool if he did, right? Because then that would have just upset the Pharisees some more, and that would have been, been, been a great thing. But he doesn't. He does not go into the man's roof. But let me tell you, it wasn't because he was afraid of the oral traditions. No, it's a much, it's a so much bigger reason why he doesn't go onto the man's roof. It's, it's an amazing, amazing thing. So we're, we're going to see that. Because what's more impressive to me, what's more impressive than the fact that this guy recognizes that he's not worthy, he's like, hey, I'm not worthy. Jesus, don't go through all the trouble. More impressive than the fact that he's not worthy, he recognizes something that, that nobody else up to this point had recognized. He recognizes that he, it's not necessary. It's not necessary. Jesus, you don't have to come under 
my roof to do what I'm asking you to do. Verse seven, let's just read it. Verse seven says, but <clears throat> this is what he said. Don't come under my, it, I'm not worthy, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion recognizes that Jesus, Jesus has the power and he has the authority to heal from a distance, from a distance. He doesn't even need to come under my roof to do this. He realizes that all Jesus has to do is just say the word. Jesus, you speak the word and I, my servant is going to be healed. But What's the deal with the servant? This, the, he's, he's paralyzed, he's sick, he's, he's suffering, and he's about to die. And this guy says, you don't even have to see him. You don't have to touch him. You can be all the way on the other side of the world. And if you say, be healed, I believe that he will be healed. I, come on, are you not impressed by the faith that this centurion has? This is unbelievable. The reason why he believes this is because he understands how power and authority work. And he explains it, right? He says, I, I know what it's like to be a person in position of authority. I know what it's like to be in a position under authority. I, I have people above me. I got Pontius Pilate, the governor of this land, and we go all the way up to Caesar. I got all kinds of people who are over me. I know what it's like to be under authority and to do what I'm told. But I also know what it's like to be able to be a person in authority, to be able to tell people to do things. And when I say do it, they do it. Why? Because I represent Caesar. If I speak, they listen because to, to disobey me is to disobey Caesar. And you don't do that, right? See, what this centurion recognized is that Jesus is under the authority of God the Father. He, he says, I, I may not have a, a fully worked out theology yet about who you are, Jesus, but I know that you are from God and whatever you say, you represent God and when you speak, people listen, it's gonna happen. That's what he recognizes. Jesus is walking and moving and breathing and ministering in Galilee and the power of God the Father. And this guy says, that type of power, the power of God, the one who created the world, he doesn't have to be present to heal someone. And I know that you have that type of power. Guys, this is incredible, incredible faith. And he didn't even have the Bible yet. He didn't have the New Testament. We, we get to read these stories and we don't have that type of faith sometimes, do we? Amazing, amazing faith that this guy has. And it amazed, well, not just me, it amazed Jesus. It amazed Jesus. Look at verse nine. When Jesus heard these things, he, look at this, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus said, wow. Did you, did you guys hear what he just said? Did, hey, did you, what? You've got to be kidding me. I haven't. I've been around Pharisees. I've been around the synagogues. I've been all over Israel. I have not heard anybody with this type of faith. This is unbelievable. He, he was wowed. That's what it means. He was marveled. By the way, what's really interesting, there's only two times in the New Testament where it says that Jesus marveled. 
Here's the first one. Well, this is actually the second one. He marveled at this incredible display of faith. You know what the second one was? It was in Nazareth, Mark chapter six. Mark chapter six, Jesus marveled in Nazareth, not at their faith, but their unbelief. Isn't that interesting? You want to marvel Jesus? Display of faith. Or what also marvels him is, how do you not have faith? How do you look at what I'm doing and not believe? Jesus goes, that just, that blows my mind. Both. Like, wow, what an incredible faith, but really no faith? You don't believe, how, are you, what's going on here? He's marveled. Verse 10 says, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Jesus didn't go onto the roof because this guy just made a very bold and a very true statement of faith. And Jesus said, you are absolutely correct. I don't need to go into the house to do this. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus said this. He said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Boom, right then. This is a, this is a remarkable story of faith. It's also another powerful demonstration of the power and authority of Jesus. Well, that brings us now to the second story. And I'm not going to spend as much time on this one. Uh, you don't know this, but the clock is flashing. So I literally have no idea what time it is. And I'm not going to look at my watch, even though it's here, because I'm stubborn. So, um, so that's the first story. The second story begins in verse 11. Verse 11, Luke says, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Now, Luke doesn't tell us exactly how long afterwards, but it's sort of implied that it was within, within a few days here. Um, not long after he had healed this centurion servant, Jesus traveled with a great crowd to a town called Nain. This is a, a really small village, much, much, much smaller than, than uh, Capernaum. It's about 25 miles uh, southwest of Capernaum. It's a, it's a day's journey by foot, you're like, a day's journey for 25 miles? Yeah, they were in better shape than we are. Than, than we are. But yeah, it was, you know, talking like probably 10 hours, probably they're walking by foot, stopping occasionally, but it's about a 10-hour walk to go from Capernaum down to, to Nain. It's also about five miles away from the town where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. One of the things that I just love about reading the Gospels is the way that we see Jesus walking and traveling around in obedience to his father, following the Spirit's you know, lead to places where people might not expect him to go. You guys read the story in John chapter four. Again, we're not gonna read it. Put it on your to-do list for this week and read John chapter four. There's a great story about Jesus. He's, he's in Judea down near Jerusalem and he's gonna travel back up to Galilee. Okay, so he's gonna travel north up to Galilee and it says in John chapter four, it says he had to pass through Samaria. It says he had to. And it wasn't because there wasn't another way. There was actually two other routes that people would take. They'd either go to the east of the Jordan or they would go along the coast up to Galilee. And both ways were ways that Jews traveled to Galilee in order to avoid Samaria because Jews did not want to have any contact with Samaritans because they were unclean. But, but, but John chapter four says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? Because God the Father had a divine appointment for Jesus in Samaria at Jacob's well with a, with a woman at the well. Great, great story. 
But that's what's going on here too. I believe that God the Father has a divine appointment for Jesus that's gonna happen in a little tiny village called Nain, a little tiny village there. But you have to believe, you have to know that, that, that there had to be people in the crowd that were following Jesus said, why are we going to Nain? We're in Capernaum. Everything we have, everything we need is here in Capernaum. What, what are we doing? Maybe there's like a famous bakery or something. Jesus is like, the croissants in Nain are unbelievable. So we're going to walk 25 miles because it's, some of you would walk 25 miles for your favorite pastry. I know you would. So um, I think I would too. So. But anyway, they, they're headed to Nain because there's a divine appointment ready to happen. Verse 12 says, as he drew near to the gate of the town, and it's a small village, by the way, so don't, don't think like the big giant gate systems that they had in the cities with walls and all that. This is a village. It, he's coming into the entrance to the village. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Luke tells us so much in, in just like, what is that, one sentence? There's so much packed into to what Luke is saying here. I want you to picture this scene, okay? So Jesus is, is, is coming from Capernaum. He's got a large crowd of followers, right? We know that hundreds, if not thousands of people would follow Jesus wherever we went. Large crowds gathering to, to listen to Jesus and follow him and see what's he gonna do next. And so this large crowd is, is coming. They're coming now down into Nain. So you got to picture it's been, what, eight, 10 hours or so. They probably left in the morning. It's, it's probably mid, late afternoon, maybe early evening, depending on what time they left Capernaum. And as they're making their way towards the town, they're coming up to the town village. They're coming up to the entrance to the town. They're met by another crowd, a considerable crowd from the village. And this crowd is coming out of the town. They're leaving the town. They're going out to where? To a place to bury. And they're carrying a man who has died. It's a funeral possession. You got one crowd that's coming in and they're just, I don't know, at least the way I picture it, they're laughing, they're telling stories. They're like, man, can you believe Jesus healed the centurion servant? And he didn't even go in the house unbelievable. They're talking about that. They're talking about all the things that Jesus has been doing. Man, that sermon was tough. Love my enemies. I'm not sure if I can do that. But they're just talking and they're hanging out and they're making their way and they look up and what do they see and what do they hear? They see mourners. They hear wailing. They see people crying as they're coming out. You got two crowds converging at the gate of Nain. And in this crowd, Luke tells us, is a widow which means she's already lost her husband, right? Her husband has already died. She's already experienced the grief of, of losing her husband. But at least she had a son. At least she had a son who could provide for her, who could protect her. Someone to be there for her, someone to carry on the family name, somebody who could, who could own the land because she was a woman she wasn't allowed to. At least she still had hope, but her hope had died. Her hope was being carried out on a stretcher. So this woman, she's, she's lost her husband. She's now lost her, not just a son, it's her only son. This woman was devastated. She was in, in a hopeless situation. You know, we talked about it earlier, just about how people around us are hurting. She was, she was in a crowd of people, but I guarantee that she felt alone. 
surrounded by people, but she felt alone. I went to a leadership conference last week and they said that we are facing an epidemic in our country right now of loneliness. Something like 72% of, of, of teens will say that they feel lonely. 72%, 50% of adults right now are saying, I feel lonely, alone. That's unreal. We're surrounded by people, but we're not connecting with people and we feel alone. This woman would have felt alone. And so there she is, she's a widow. She's lost everything she has and she's weeping as she makes her way outside of the town to bury her son. And in verse 13, we read that when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. When Jesus saw her, he saw her. He didn't say, hey, guys, let's part the crowd. Let's move. Let's let them through. Let them through. They got it. They're busy. No, he looked at this woman. He looked at her. He saw her. He saw her pain. He saw what she was going through. And he noticed. And he had compassion on her. He cared. I got to say, this is, this is my favorite verse in the whole passage. This is my favorite verse. Because this is the heart of your Savior. This is the heart of your Savior. He doesn't see pain and say, too busy. I don't have time. We do that, don't we? We do that. Jesus sees her, and he was moved with compassion. There's a definition that's been used for compassion. is your pain, your pain in my heart. Your pain in my heart. Jesus looks at this woman, and he feels her pain. The actual word that, you, that, that Luke uses here, that is translated as compassion, it's a word that means to be moved in your gut. This is a gut-wrenching reaction from Jesus. His, his gut is wrenched. His heart is broken for the pain that he is seeing in front of him. Man, there's so many grieving people. So many grieving people. And in this context, it's, it's, a, it's a woman who's lost her son. But I'm telling you, the people around you right now are grieving over something. They're feeling pain, and they need someone who cares. It says, I care. I'll walk with you through this pain. And so Jesus approaches her, and, and with what I imagine, again, the text doesn't say it, but I, I, I imagine Jesus' own eyes welling up with tears as he looks at her and he says, do not weep. Do not weep. It's not an incense, but because it's a weird thing to say to someone at a funeral, right? Stop crying. Because <laughs> it's, it's kind of an emphatic thing that he says here. It's, it's a very, like, stop weeping, stop crying. But it's, it's because he knows what he's about to do. He knows what he's about to do. Her tears of sorrow are about to be replaced with, I think, more tears, tears of joy. Verse 14, we read, then he came up and he touched the, the beer, but, which by the way, is, is, it's a stretcher. Don't think like Western um, you know, funeral here with a, a casket that gets wrapped in beautiful ornate things and then put in a vault. No, this is like, it's a stretcher, okay? There's a stretcher here and, and he comes up to the stretcher and the, the bearers, the guys carrying it, stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, Arise. <laughs> Can you imagine being there? This is, the, this is incredible. 
And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. What an amazing, amazing couple of verses. You have no idea. You, you have no idea how much I wish I could just snap my fingers and, and, and have you hear this for the first time as though you've never heard it before. I, I, I want that for me. You have no idea how much I wish we could just snap our fingers, be transported back in time, and be in, in the crowd that day. I don't care if you're with Jesus or you're with the mourners, but to be in the crowd that day and see this Jewish rabbi that you've probably heard about up, up from Capernaum area walking up to the stretcher, like, what's he doing? What's he doing? Don't, don't touch the body. You're going to be unclean. You can't touch a dead body, right? But Jesus walking up to the stretcher, reaching out his hand, and now he's talking to the dead body on a stretcher. Like, again, we read these stories with such a, like, a sanctified view or something like, we, so I think, we're like, what? He's talking to a dead person. And he goes up to him and he says, he says, arise. <laughs> says he, he sat up and he began to talk. Like, he, you got to picture this too, I guess. So when, when they prepared the body for burial, they would take strips of cloth that had been soaked in all kinds of aromatic spices, right? So this guy is like wrapped up like a mummy on top of a stretcher. He's like all wrapped up and he sits up and he's like trying to talk, but he's got to peel his, peel his cloth off his face and he begins to talk. He's sitting up and he's talking and people are like, what is going on right now? What is going on? I, by the way, have you ever you've seen those books like the miracles of the Bible? Jesus walked on the water. He fed the 5,000. There's another miracle that's not listed in any of those lists, and here's the miracle. The miracle is that the guys who were carrying the stretcher didn't drop him. <laughs> so, I, I'm like, can you imagine? Can you imagine you're a pallbearer, and you're carrying, let's keep you here in our context. It's a casket, and as you're carrying, somebody walks up and says, arise, and the lid pops open, and the person sits up and starts talking. Like, how did they not drop the guy in fear? I would have been so terrified, wouldn't, wouldn't you? They were. In fact, the text says that everyone there was afraid. But before we talk about the, the reaction of the people, I, just, I, I want you to notice what Jesus does after he brings the man back to life. Luke says that Jesus gave him to his mother, I mean, he could have pulled the guy down and said, welcome back. Come and follow me. Come and be my disciple. Right? He could have done that. He could have said, you, you, you should come with us. We're going to be traveling all over, and we're going to tell this story to everybody. It's going to be amazing. You should be part of, my, part of my team. He doesn't. He gives him back to his mother because, you know, his heart is for this woman, Jesus cares about this woman who has lost her husband. She's lost her son, and he is ministering into her pain, and he says, oh, here's your son. By the way, he did the same thing when he was on the cross. Remember that? He looked out at another grieving mother. Who was that? His mother. He looked at Mary as he's hanging on the cross, and he said, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He knew he was about to die. He knew he was about to leave, but he cared about his mom, and he said, John, you take care of my mom. Take care of her. Jesus has a heart of compassion. He 
cares. And he ministers into their pain. And that's what we're called to do. Again, I, 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 unless God, for some reason, gives me the supernatural ability and the faith to go up to a casket and ask the person to arise, probably not going to happen. Could it? I mean, yeah. I mean, God can do anything, right? But, but, but he has called me to walk through a lot of pain with a lot of people. And he's called you to do the same. If you're a follower of Jesus, he says, walk like me, follow me, be my disciple, live like me, love others, minister to them, walk with them through their pain, care for the people around you. That's what he's called us to do. Verse 16, we're told that fear sees them all. <laughs> yeah, obviously. They glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Luke says that everyone was filled with fear and worship, right? Fear and worship. We should have that heart every time we come before the Lord. We come before him in fear and, and worship. They, they were freaked out. You know, they, again, obviously, Obviously, why? Because a dead person just came back to life, and that would be scary to most people. That would freak you. But more, I think more scary than, than, than the fact that this guy is back alive. We know him, but I am standing now in the presence of a person who has the power to bring somebody back from the dead. What? Like, in my mind, I picture the crowd taking a giant gasp and stepping back. What? Have I just seen? How else would you respond than fear and, and, and worship? Amazing. Fear sees them all. They glorify God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. They, they, again, they don't necessarily, they don't have a complete worked out Christology. Like, well, we know exactly who Jesus is here. He is the second member of the Trinity. He is the son of God. They don't have all this figured out yet, but what they do know is that the man that's standing in their presence right here is from God. He is from God. He speaks for God, and when he speaks, things happen, and he has power to even raise people from the dead. By the way, is that not awesome? How about the fact that Jesus has the power over death? Are you excited about that? That one day, death is going to be completely annihilated. Death is an enemy, it's an enemy. It still steals people that we love and care about, right? It, it wreaks havoc in our world. We, we're experiencing unbelievable pain because of this enemy called death, but it is a defeated enemy, right? Because Jesus defeated death when he himself rose from the dead. And one day there will be no more death. There will be no more tears. There's going to be no more suffering, right? Praise God that it's a defeated foe. Let me close our time with this. As I said at the beginning, I, what I love about this chapter is, is that we get to see the heart and the compassion of our Savior Jesus on full display. And I want you to know, I want you to know that the, the same compassion that he had when he looked at this woman in her pain, he feels the same broken heart and the same gut-wrenching love for you in your pain. He really loves you. He really loves you. Psalm 34, 18, right? The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. 
Cling to the promises. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He has that heart of compassion. And as his followers, he's called you to be ministers of that compassion to others. And so as I said at the beginning, man, drop the masks. Get rid of, get rid of the, 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 oh, I'm great. Everything's perfect. Everything in my life is, it couldn't be better. But that, that is sometimes true. It usually lasts for a day. Um, like life is hard. Life is hard. Share your burdens with each other. Walk with the, each other through your pain. Be like Jesus. That's my heart for you. It's my heart for me. And I know that that is what Jesus wants us to take away from this passage. To have the faith of the centurion and the compassion of the Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the heart that you have, the heart of compassion that you had for brokenness, that you actually stepped into the brokenness and went to the cross on our behalf. Greater love has no one than this, and they would die for their friends, and you died for us while we were still enemies. That's what your word tells us. Your heart breaks for the pain that others are walking through, and God, you have, you have called us to be ministers of reconciliation and, and bringing hope and healing to those who are hurting, and God, I pray that we as your people will take that seriously. God, give us the faith of that centurion and give us the heart of compassion that your son Jesus had to minister to the lives of those around us. We pray these things in the powerful name of your son Jesus, our Savior. Amen.